Happy Monday! This is Cordelia on the We Heal Together podcast. Today's episode, I'm talking to Todd Barrett. He is an amazing therapist based in New York City. He is also the person behind the incredible Instagram, one of my favorite Instagrams, Your Diagnonsense. I will link all his info in the show notes today because I have a feeling you guys are going to be just as obsessed with him as I am. (laughs) So I encourage it. Follow him. If you live in New York City, you know, he is a therapist there, but also he has really amazing programs. He, He does coaching all over the world. So even if you're not based in New York, he kind of elaborates on the podcast today, but he is able to You're able to benefit from his work in other ways, whether it be coaching or his e-course. He has lots to offer. And like I said, I love his Instagram. I have post notifications on for him because I don't trust Instagram to show me all of his posts and they're so good and I don't want to miss them. So today's episode, Todd and I talk about sex and Lots of things, all the things. This was an amazing conversation and I'm so pumped for you guys to listen to it. As always, check out the show notes for information about myself. I am Cordelia. I run the Instagram at Codependent Recovery. This is the We Heal Together podcast and new episodes drop every Monday. You can find information about me, my work, my content, my workbook, all the things, and you can also find information about Todd in the show notes. So be sure to check those out. Be sure to support Todd and support his work because he's incredible. Yay! Let's get into this podcast. Can you guys just tell me to shut up already? Thank you so much for being here with me. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm very excited to be talking to you. You, you're probably, if not my favorite therapist on Instagram, but maybe even favorite account. I love all of your posts. <laughs> thank you, thank you. That's really nice to see. Yeah, of course. I have my post notifications on for you, <laughs> so I get my updates, and I I love to just follow along. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yes. Yeah, it's like in the top. But when you posted that, that's how I learned, and I was like so honored that, <laughs> that you, you want to be notified when I'm saying something. I know, because I feel like it's... But thank you. Yeah, of course. Well, I feel like if I don't do that, for some reason, my feed doesn't show like my favorite account sometimes (laughs) so it helps me yeah well yeah um so a little bit about you before we dive into everything so you're a psychotherapist in new york city is that right yep 
I'm a psychotherapist, which means um, I'm a therapist, I'm a shrink, I'm a, a coach, you know, pick your word, I'm not particular. Um, and I see individuals and couples for ongoing therapy. So that's like talk therapy, we're coaching, I, you know, I, I, I don't really care to differentiate or just make a distinction. Um, but uh, yeah, I see individuals, couples, ongoing sessions, therapy, most of the people that come to see me are coming in with some kind of a relationship issue, which I think, you know, that's just like life, <laughs> um, but relationships um, or sex, because I specialize in that. That's awesome. And I guess yeah. what made you get into that field? What made you want to become a psychotherapist? And also what drew you specifically to gravitating towards sex and relationships? Well, I've been in therapy forever. Um, I'm also asked this question a lot and you'd think I'd have some like quick elevator pitch response, but every time I'm like, well, why did I? <laughs> then, um, but so I've been in therapy forever. And um, when I mean forever, I mean forever. Um, I've never actually not been in therapy, which is kind of interesting. Um, but so I started going to therapy when I was very young, when I was like 10. Um, and then uh, it's just, I had such a wonderful experience and continue to have such a wonderful experience in therapy. I actually still see the same therapist that I started seeing when I was 15, um, which is pretty That's unique. Amazing. Um, but so I had such a, yeah, um, I had such a positive experience in therapy. Um, and I had just been through so much when I was younger. Um, and, you know, I don't want to be like, I'm cured. But you know, I've really made a lot of changes and things are much, much, much different. Um, and so having that experience really motivated, inspired, et cetera, me to pursue that in school, um, just because I wanted to learn more about psychology and culture and the world. Um, and then that just translated into after undergrad, you know, the next logical step to me was like, okay, what am I going to do? Um, and I was like, oh, I'll be a therapist. This makes sense. Um, and so then I did that. Um, and my original therapist, the one that I still see that I've been seeing forever, um, is a sex therapist. And so, um, you know, again, very unique, very lucky and privileged to be receiving sex therapy from the age of 14. Um, but that really had an impact on me. You know, my therapist when I was 14 was asking me questions about my dick or questions about like my first sexual experiences. And um, at the time I was coming out and, you know, so it was just so helpful. Um, and then when I started entering therapy spaces as a student, um, there was no talk about sex. So I was like, huh, this is an issue. <laughs> this is something I really want to do. Um, and so that that's how the focus in sex came up. That's amazing. And I love hearing about, I love that you've been able to stay with that same therapist. That seems like, I mean, that's just really cool that you've had a confidant and somebody from like a very young age that you've been able to carry with you as a therapist. Yeah, I mean, it's life, it's been life changing, like quite literally. And I know that, you know, most people that see a therapist for like five years, six years, um, but this is, you know, maybe the longest relationship I've ever had um, besides my parents. So yeah, um, yeah, it's been life changing. That's really amazing. With my move coming up, I'm having to change therapists. Like I'm going to have to find a new one when I get there. And that's mm -hmm. something I feel like I definitely have been thinking about like, oh, I really like, you know, I've been seeing the current one I've been going to for like three or four years. And I don't know that it's just kind of sad to think about like, oh, I'm going to have to start over <laughs> with somebody else. 
why not can you not continue to see this person she said that i like she's not licensed in the state that i'm going to be moving to so she said she's only licensed in tennessee um so that was kind of where we had left it um so inter- i don't know i'm gonna have to to look into that <laughs> um okay. i mean there is like there's a lot of i mean you can edit this out i don't remember, yeah, but no. I, so I, I don't know i see people all over the world um you know and ethically you know am i licensed in germany no and is that good or bad you know i don't know it, but like uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be labeled therapy it can be just coaching that's true um but it's really up to the individual therapist to decide their comfort level with that um if you're not billing through insurance it's if it's not like a medical necessity if it's not going through those medical channels then you know yeah you can call it mentorship you know you can call it whatever you want um but i'm sure that there are probably some people that would tell me i should get my license taken away for saying that so you know i don't know i think that's really I mean, that's awesome. And that's a good transition to, to kind of ask, because I'm sure a lot of people after listening to this will want to be like, um, I want to work with Todd. So regardless of where they are in the world, it sounds like they can work with you. It just, you know, might be coaching or, you know, something besides quote unquote therapy. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, I see people all over, um, you know, sometimes it's for short, um, since for some specific sexual issue, other times it's just ongoing coaching stuff. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, if people want to work with me, they can just reach out to me via email or, um, no, I was going to say DM, but don't DM me, (laughs) um, email me. Um, at this moment, I'm not, I'm not taking any on any new clients. I have a wait list. Um, so, um, that might be a barrier. Um, but you can still get in touch with me. I have an online program though. If you want to work with me in that way, um, you can. So that's something to think about if you do. Yeah, that looked really cool. I was looking at that. Is it called sex sessions? Am I, is that right? Okay. Yeah, it's called sex sessions. I'm like, I'm good at marketing, but not that good at marketing. <laughs> I don't know. Um, Cause like I, I'm trying to build it out to be more of like a general coaching therapy online program. Yeah. Um, but I, since I started marketing it as a course um, I'm trying to figure out how to like rebrand it. But basically you just, you like, we, I have monthly sessions with the group or that I call the community. There's the people that have signed up and people come and they ask questions and share their story and I give feedback. Um, and then there's also a course um, that's, uh, the course is just about sex, um, but I'm trying to get out a course about relationships and just life in general. But the sessions are about whatever people want it to be about. Um, so I just have to do a better job at like prom- <laughs> promoting it in the right way where people get it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but that's good to yeah. know for, I mean, since you have a wait list for anybody that wanted to jump in on that, that sounds really cool. Yeah, I think it's a really great value. I mean, my sessions aren't cheap. The course is, um, considering what you get, I think a really good price. Yeah, but, for sure. Um, you get a workbook, you get a bunch of stuff. Anyway, if people want to work with me um, through that, they can sign up on my website. I love that. Um, okay, well, I'm going to just kind of go through some random questions about sex. Sure. And... Um, you know, just kind of going one one by one. And I kind of 
made it so to pick out like some stigmas so that's what all the questions kind of are surrounding so first one is this can be in your real life just like dating or friends or it could be with coaching or therapies what are the biggest misconceptions or myths that you kind of come across frequently involving sex uh, well, there are so many, uh, and I'm never, um, like I've been doing this for a while and I'm always shocked, um, because you know, it's like every time I'm hearing them, I'm hearing them for the first time. Uh, I mean, the, the, I actually just posted about this today, but, um, you know, I think one of the most common things that I hear and one variation or another, um, is that there's a, this thing of a normal sexuality or a normal way to have sex. Um, and so then that creates a whole bunch of other myths. So that's like the umbrella. <laughs> and then underneath is, you know, I should come at the same time as my partner. I should only be, I should come by my partner's touch and not my own. I should not have to use any vibrators in order to come. Um, we should come at the same time. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Um, or, you know, about fantasy, the normal way to fantasize, the normal way to do whatever. It all comes back to this kind of belief that, there is a normal sexuality and a normal way to function sexually and that we should all be doing that. Um, and so most people don't, um, some people do, but just as many people don't, um, if not more. And so then that just creates a whole host of issues. I think you highlighted so many good, I mean, you're right. There's just so many of them. I definitely, I feel like that's a recurring thing, especially in movies, like the simultaneous orgasm. I mean, porn too, yeah. but even... In like 0.5 seconds. <laughs> I know. Like every... Obviously, like porn is a whole other subject, but I'm even just thinking about regular movies. You know, like the sex scene, it's like five seconds. They both orgasm at the same time. Like in a yep. heteronormative couple. And that's how most... It's like nobody even touches the clitoris. <laughs> Yeah. And that's how we most people learn about sex because nobody gets uh, any kind of education or um, guidance. Um, and so that's really all we have is what we can access on media. Yeah. And TV, film. When I was porn. listening to you talk about working with a sex therapist at a young age, I'm honestly so jealous because I had no sex education. I mean, I don't know how much sex education is you had just exposed to in regular school I guess in New York Tennessee I mean I had none there was not even like a there wasn't even an abstinence only class there was just no class period and so I felt I don't know I always say that I feel like there was a lot of trauma with associated with the lack of knowledge so like the first time that I was exposed to any kind of sexual situation, I feel like I just didn't know what was going on. Sorry. My oh, speaking. you're fine. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard depending on where you are. I mean, and this is how culture really shapes sexuality is even, you know, depending on where you are in certain States and certain neighborhoods and certain blocks, you may or may not receive information that will actually help you experience your body, your life and sexuality. Um, so it is hard. And I, you know, I think it is common in more conservative places as you're describing that it's either abstinent only or just 
absent, <laughs> um, and that creates a lot of challenges for people. Yes, yeah, I think that's a great point. That's, and I think if you're not getting exposed to it somewhere else, like if your parents aren't teaching you, or you're not seeing a therapist that's able to teach you. I mean, you are really dependent on movies or porn or friends that don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, you know, now, though, with social media, there's so much information, yes. uh, which is great. So especially when it comes to sex ed and sex positive information, um, you know, there are memes about it. It's just it's really great. Yeah, I think that's that's so true. That is one really positive thing about social media. I honestly, I love, especially Instagram, I love that there's so much content available. I mean, so many mental health professionals that just make really great stuff. So I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really helpful for people. What are some things that you think people should talk about before having sex? And I keep saying having sex. I guess I should distinguish. I don't mean just penetrative sex because I know that's what a lot of people think of when they think of sex but sex is yes all the things so just anything yeah. yes um, I feel like that's something that I personally no one ever taught me I'm sure most people were never taught this so I thought this would be a good thing for you to kind of cover like just some basic things and this could, I mean, this could be a one night stand or it could be somebody that you've been dating for a while, whatever the case, just like some things, some topics, some boundaries, some discussions that you think would be important for some, somebody having sex for the first time with another partner. Sure. Um, I mean, everything. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it doesn't have to be like a whole encyclopedia, um, but, you know, the basics. I mean, I, I can't stop comparing anything that anything really uh, to food, um, maybe just because I've become so um, hungry. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, if you were going to have somebody over and cook them dinner, um, you wouldn't just be like, I'm going to make something and I'm not going to tell you what it is if you didn't know them because they could be allergic. They may not like it. You probably want to make sure they enjoy their meal. You want to like it as well, blah, blah, blah. So you'd have a conversation, you know, do you have any allergies? What is your favorite food? Do you like spicy things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, how much do you usually want? How hungry are you, et cetera. So you're going to really want to get all those details. So when it comes to sex, it's no different. Um, the difference is though, again, as we were just talking about is that we learn a variety of different things or don't learn a variety of different things about sex. And then those things are usually wrong or absent and we feel shame about them. And so we don't talk about them. So um, you're going to want to start approaching sex like food. Um, and so the first time you're going to have sex with somebody, um, you're going to want to talk about the things that you like, the thing and the things that you don't like, um, both being equally as important. I think oftentimes people just talk about what turns them on. Um, but what's just as important, if not more important, is what turns you off. Um, because somebody can be doing like everything that you like and do one thing to turn you off. And that could be it. Like that's it's over. Um, for some people, it's just that simple. And that's totally fine. Um, so you want to talk about what turns you on, what turns you off. Um, you want to talk about boundaries, things that you really don't like or don't want to do, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, I, you know, I, 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 the important part is to have fun. 
Um, you know, you're not talking about planning a funeral. Uh, <laughs> you're talking about sex and connecting with somebody. Um, and so you're, you may also want to talk about what that means. You know, specifically, what will you do? Um, you know, are you just going to be masturbating together? Are you just going to cuddle and make out and grind? Are you going to have oral sex? Do you not want to have oral sex? Um, are there parts of your body that you don't want your partner to touch? Um, some people have certain language that they use to describe their genitals or their uh, specific parts of their bodies. Again, that either turns them on or turns them off. Um, so there's all sorts of different things uh, to talk about with partners before you have sex with them um, and after you have sex with them and talk about how it went. Um, you know, I really liked that was really hot. I, you know, next time, can we do X, Y, Z, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that just like you would with food. <laughs> yes. This real this tasted so good. How did you make it? Right. Exactly. So what do you come across then? Like what's the biggest thing holding people back that you've worked with from being able to openly communicate about stuff like that, either before or after the fact? Fear. Fear and shame. Um, I'm really not sure if there's anything else there. Yeah. <laughs> fear, shame, maybe, a re or their a perception of their partner's fear and shame that's expressed through judgment or withdrawal. Yeah. Um, I see that often, um, is that, you know, one partner has some kind of shame or fear or something and um, they withdraw um, or they avoid certain conversations or refuse to communicate about certain things. Um, but so it's, it's fear and shame. Um, about what I was describing and we were talking about in terms of, you know, investing in this belief that sex should look one way or another. Um, and also what sex means in the context of a relationship too. In terms of the values that people apply to how they perceive their partners uh, perceiving them. So how we see others seeing us. Also, um, you know, in terms of monogamy or non-monogamy, um, fear is about pushing people away um, or being quote unquote too much. So it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of relational fear and sexual fear um, that comes up. Whether or not you're sitting there biting your nails saying, I'm so scared, <laughs> avoiding a conversation is unconscious fear and shame. So you don't have to necessarily be shivering in the corner with fear in order to be expressing fear. For sure. I think about myself and I mean, I'm 30 now, but I think especially in my early 20s when I was kind of navigating dating and all that, I definitely remember feeling thoughts of, well, I don't want to speak up and tell this person, you know, X, Y, or Z because what if that pushes them away or what if that's, like you said, too much or, mm -hmm. you know, almost feeling like, and I think there was a lot of society, like I said, no sex education. I didn't really know what was going on anyways. But from what I gathered from society, sex was supposed to be all about the man and I was supposed to be pleasing mm -hmm. him. So I really like, I never had stopped to really think about my needs. And I just think it's interesting to empower yourself with that knowledge of what you're sharing, of things that is totally quote unquote normal and should be talked about, you know, before and after sex and just normalizing no matter who you are, it's totally that you should have needs. You should have sexual needs. <laughs> yes. Yes. So what are your thoughts in general about 
faking orgasms. Like, why do people fake orgasms? And from people that you've worked with, how often does this come up in therapy or coaching? Um, well, I mean, don't fake orgasms. Um, you know, if you're eating again, coming back to food, if somebody cooks you a meal and you say, oh my God, it's so good. I love it. They're going to give you an extra serving or they'll make it for you again and you'll have to eat it. So if you don't like something or if something isn't feeling pleasurable, or if you can't get off, that's okay. Um, you know, I think it's better to be honest about it, but, um, you know, most of the times when people are faking their pleasure, um, it's for a variety of performative and relational reasons. Um, and it could also be because they're trying to get sex to be, to finish um, and they don't want to have sex anymore. Um, this is this is particularly um, prevalent. I don't know the word prevalent, but uh, common for cis women, as you're saying, growing up, um, understanding sex as being defined by and through their cis male um, counterparts pleasure. Um, and so therefore, um, there is this pleasure gap and that is the one where that prioritizes male pleasure over female pleasure. Um, and, um, then what often happens is that, you know, this, this woman is not having pleasure, um, and is just performing, uh, in service of her male, cis male partner's pleasure. Um, so, uh, this is, you know, again, how culture and history really shapes how, um, people of certain identities experience their sexuality. Um, and so it's pretty common. Um, and it's something, you know, that has just a ton of meaning behind it. Um, you know, I don't think it's really helpful to judge the behavior, but to think about, okay, well, why are people faking orgasms in the first place? And, you know, and again, this is culture and this is history. Um, so it's important to, to explore that one um, on your own, but then also with a partner in terms of what you're learning about yourself and how to prioritize your own pleasure over your partner's pleasure. Um, and uh, uh, to really, you know, not put pressure on yourself that you all of a sudden change one day and just, you know, do a 180, it takes some time. Um, and experimenting and working through some of that fear and um, finding a partner where you feel safe enough to do so. Yes, I think you hit so many, so many important key things there. I know just thinking again in my own life, just what you said about, you know, there being some performative and thinking sex has to look a certain way. Some things that popped into my head are when I, well, in the movies and everything, it's depicted as when the guy comes, it's over. And so I never really thought that, oh, hey, I could actually like keep going and use a vibrator or whatever, or, you know, it doesn't have to end with the guy. And again, I'm just talking in a, this wouldn't encompass every, you know, gender and identity or anything like that. I'm just talking from my personal experience. Um, So when I think back about, you know, some of the sexual experiences I had, it's like, I feel like I almost had some kind of pressure to orgasm because I, to just act like I orgasmed because I'm like, well, he's done. He's like almost done and then it's going to be over. And then also in porn, oh my gosh, like cis women in porn are just screaming and just like, it, 
I don't know. I used to think there was something totally wrong with me, basically, after I would watch porn. Because I'm like, wait, I definitely don't feel that way from penetrative sex. So I don't know what's happening. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, well, porn really, you know, it's um, just like any other media in terms of watching a movie and watching somebody, I don't know, express happiness. You know, it may not feel the same way. Um, but this is where, again, the lack of education and information and um, cultural and history really all contribute to that. Um, and so, you know, it's helpful to just, you know, we first have to understand that we've all to some extent been repressed in that sense um, and then develop some kind of sexual integrity that focuses and, and works on uh, relearning some new things. Yes. That being that decentralizes pleasure around um, a specific gender or genital um, and um, closes that pleasure gap um, and works towards a sense of mutuality and reciprocality and um, uh, and all of that. Absolutely. Since I brought up porn, this is probably a good segue. What's your stance in general on porn? Um, well, I mean, I, I, people probably come for me as they have on Instagram. (laughs) I don't, I I think that there's just like, there are so many problems with everything and I'm not trying to say, well, so porn doesn't matter, but like, there is a lot of issues with reality TV, TV and film are completely inaccurate in their portrayal of life generally, um, and promote, you know, some pretty toxic values. And so porn does as well. Um, but there's also a lot of TV and film that promotes really wonderful things, um, similarly with porn. So, you know, I think people generally tend to look at one bad part of anything or anybody or any experience, and then use that as a way to define the entire thing. And that's just not helpful. Um, it's just not helpful. There are parts of porn that aren't, that are bad. Sure. Yes, I agree. Um, but there are also parts of porn that are not people that work in porn sex workers i think the you know one assumption is is you know these poor sex workers blah, blah, blah. that's a sex negative belief right. um there are many people that work in sex or do sex work of some kind and love their job and if you were to say that all porn is bad you would be taking away their job and their pleasure um so uh you know i think we really have to be careful about how we use this kind of all or nothing approach with porn or anything um the other thing is, you know, is porn the problem or is the lack of sex education the problem that causes people who are watching porn to believe that that's right <laughs> and that people should be screaming um, and that an orgasm feels like an, a volcanic, a volcanic <laughs> eruption? You know, if we are believing um, in these things, you know, if we're watching, you know, um, some rom-com and we believe that that's what love is supposed to look like, you know, that could be a problem. But I think we all know that love is not some fairy tale, at least some of us. Um, and so we don't expect that from our relationships or the love that we experience. Um, we still may fantasize about it or wish that it was that easy, but we simply don't. Um, and so we, we don't because we see in the world that relationships are complex. Um, and so the same thing goes for porn, um, but sex is, you know, even more stigmatized and steeped in more cultural fear, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So long story short, I don't have a problem with porn. There are problematic parts of porn, um, but the conversation about porn and this like anti-porn movement, you know, really, really misses 
um, you know, a crucial conversation around sex ed and sexuality and sex positivity. Um, and so it's it's really problematic when people take this approach that it's all bad or, but what about this and what about that? Yes, that those are bad, but you know, that's not <laughs> the entirety of what porn is. Also, you know, it's like a huge industry that most people watch. So, you right. know, there's the, the other part of this is that people actually do watch it, whether they're talking about it or admitting <laughs> it and get a lot of pleasure and entertainment from it. So, um, you know, it's not all that bad. I agree. And like you said, there's good and bad in everything. And I agree. I mean, most most of the issues really are just in the lack of sex education to begin with. I I mean, I think porn can be really helpful, especially on your own, figuring out what you like. And I think yes. much, much like we talked about earlier with the word sex, I also think the word porn is just like lumped in. And so people just picture like if you hear somebody watching porn, most people are like picturing, I don't know, just something something dirty, I guess, is kind of the association with the word and I mean for example until and that's exactly why people are watching <laughs> porn because they people seek out dirty and or taboo um, sexual experiences and that's part of what makes some erotic yeah. fantasies erotic and fan and fantastical exactly but anyway what were you saying oh no you're fine um well I it, it wasn't until Honestly, until I was like 24 or 25 that I, number one, got a vibrator, which is mind-blowing to me, <laughs> but also just watched porn for the first time, and it discover it really helped me discover, like, there's a whole category of just, like, auditory porn, which probably is TMI since mm -hmm. we're just now meeting each other. <laughs> But I really... No, I'm a sex therapist. There's no such thing as TMI. <laughs> but it helped me discover that I actually am like an auditory... Like I get really turned on by just talking, like just hearing that stuff. So I bring that up to That's say great. that I think a lot of times people say porn and, you know, they don't even acknowledge like, well, what about this whole category of porn that exists that's really just like putting on headphones and, you know, listening to somebody dirty talk, essentially. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and there are companies that just produce that type of erotic material. There's also like cartoon porn or anime porn or, you know, there's a lot of different stuff out there, um, which is, you know, why it's important not to say it's all bad. I mean, the other thing is that, you know, when we do that, we also inadvertently and unintentionally or intentionally shame people for, um, uh, pursuing certain fantasies or whatever erotic material they use when they masturbate. So it's really important that when we have these kind of opinions that we're not also creating more shame. Um, yeah. And that's generally what happens. That's so true. And I think, I mean, as we talk about porn, I hear of people talk about porn addiction and sex addiction so Ugh. are those real things? Like, what is that? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I like don't I like used to post about this a couple of times, like I'm used to I did post a couple of times and I had to on um, what's the word? I had to take the comments off, whatever oh, that yeah, what is the little okay. thing you do. 
turn the, I had to turn them off <laughs> because people were like really mean. Um, you know, some people are really invested in the idea of addiction when it comes to a variety of things. And the word addiction has been expanded to, you know, people can be addicted to their body. People can be addicted to a feeling. Um, you know, addiction is like everything as long as you do it repeatedly in service of coping with something, which, you know, I, I think is absolutely ridiculous <laughs> um, and unhelpful. I've never met anybody that's come in to see me for what they think is an addiction and not felt completely oppressed by the shame they experience by the label of being thought to um, have an addiction. Um, and I'm not talking about substances. I'm talking about porn, sex, right. um, food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't, and I know that, but what about brain studies? And what about, I can't with the brain studies. <laughs> we, yes, there are brain studies, but the reality when it comes to these brain studies is it's really only so much information we know about how the brain works. Um, and so making a comparison between um, these natural, uh, the natural pleasure we can derive from our bodies and substances that we put into our bodies and then the reactions that happen in our brain because of it and assuming that because they look similar that it is similar is just incorrect. Um, if someone comes in to see me and they say they have a porn addiction and they're committed to it, you know, I'm not going to say, well, I can't see you unless you agree with me <laughs> that addiction isn't, that that's not an addiction, but I just don't focus on addiction. Right. Um, I want to focus on why. Why are you watching porn all day? Why are you having sex all day? Um, you know, why are you getting into these positions that are creating, you know, a lot of issues for you as it relates to sex? Because it's not about sex. It's not about porn. It's about some kind of anxiety or sadness or trauma or whatever right. life experience that creates this kind of compulsion to do whatever it is that's being labeled in that behavior as an addiction. Um, the other thing is that most people make assumptions about other people's behaviors. Mm, yeah. They're not talking about their own. Most of the time, they're talking about how they observe other people express their sexuality. And that's just a big no. You, you never want to have opinions like that about the way that somebody else expresses their sexuality. Unless, you know, no, unless, no, you never <laughs> want to. Unless they're on board with it, you know, it's, it's a big no. Um, and the other thing I'll say is that I've actually never come into contact with somebody who is engaging in sexual activities that most people would say that's an addiction. Right. Um, maybe a few times, but I've not, you know, had someone come in to see me that says, you know, I've just been jerking off for 15 hours today and I got fired and um, I'm arrested now because I was doing it on the street too. Right. I, you know, I, I just haven't. Um, I see people who have a lot of sex um, and am I going to label that an addiction because right. they have a lot of sex? I mean, I know that, you know, there's this new thing that sex therapists are saying that, you know, uh, compulsive sexual behavior, you know, fine if you want to label it. But again, I, I'm really not interested in, in one bit and coming up with categories, more yeah. categories to label behavior, especially sexual behaviors. Again, I want to know, are you having fun? Do you feel safe? Right. Are you anxious? Or is there consent? Or is everything, you know, is that all there? Okay. Yes. Great. What's going on behind the scenes here? What is going on in the rest of your life? Right. What's going on with your family? Are you in a relationship? Are you alone? Are you sad? Do you want to be touched? Um, what are you coping with that, that you're getting from this stimulation and, and helping um, cope with that? Um, so anyway, I could go on and on. Um, but, um, you know, it's, I think it's an issue. And again, I think it comes from sexual fear. Um, and, uh, it's a problem. Yeah. 
Same with the food addiction stuff. And people are focusing on, you know, putting parameters and boundaries around food. Um, I recently posted something saying, eat whatever you want. And, you know, again, I got these awful comments, you know, you should know better as a therapist. And I'm like, I literally just said, <laughs> eat what you want. Like, you know, people will die. I got, you know, oh it's, gosh, you know, yeah. these are reactions that suggest a lot of meaning. Um, so, you know, it's something really to pay attention to. Yeah. Well, first, I, I'm pretty sure no matter what you post on the internet, like, from my experience, at least, there's always somebody that's going to be pissed. <laughs> I know. Someone's going to disagree and think you're terrible. Exactly. And then in terms of sex addiction, I think you, I mean, you highlighted really good distinctions. People are very quick to label. I mean, if you think about it, basically anything in life would be an addiction at the end of the day. Like, that you life is an addiction we literally do the same thing every day we wake up and we do something most people work and they complain about their job i live in new york i know you're moving to new york but new york is getting on my nerves and i I, you know i'm i'm addicted to new york i don't want to leave even though i hate it you know that's half of new york most new yorkers have such this love hate yeah so everything is an addiction yeah it totally is and i even think of like coffee pops in my head how you know, if we talk about drug addiction and you talk about somebody doing cocaine all the time and being addicted to cocaine, but then it's completely normalized to drink like five cups of coffee, like nobody would bat an eye. <laughs> so I, I think yeah. it's a lot of it has to do with society and what other right. people are comfortable labeling. I do remember, I don't even remember what celebrities they were. I think it was, but I remember there was like a period of time where I felt like every male celebrity that was caught in some kind of cheating scandal was like, I'm a sex addict. I have a sex addiction. (laughs) Yeah. So ridiculous. No, you're just an asshole. Like, I think we really have to separate like the sex from the behavior. Um, You know, when someone is harassing and assaulting somebody repeatedly, That's a problem with the, who they are as a person, not right. the way they express their sexuality. They have no empathy or compassion for how they treat other people. Yes. That's very different. But yeah, you know, that's what I was thinking, but I hadn't said yet is, you know, <laughs> even with Bill Clinton, they were saying he's a sex addict. You know, these are not, right. you know, when the whole Monica Lewinsky, that was a whole other issue in the 90s that was, you know, so, such, so problematic. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that, that we're not talking about sex. We're talking about people. Right. There's a big difference. Exactly. Yeah, that's the thing. It's It definitely seemed like for a while it was just like being used by celebrities to kind of defer accountability and probably, you know, normal, quote unquote, normal folks too. But I just remember a period of time of celebrities. It seemed like for three years straight, just like, no, yeah. I'm a sex addict too. God, what, I can't remember his name, but it's the guy on the X-Files. He was one of them. Oh, is it David? Duke yes, Duke? him. Yes. Him, yes. Yeah. Um, where, yeah. There's just- and the people that specialize in sex addiction are the people that work at these, you know, $50,000 a month <laughs> yeah. um, recovery centers or the people who do sex addiction research that are benefiting from the research from sex addiction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or they have books called, you know, how to, what a sex addict is. Yeah. You know, that they're selling sex addiction. Well, I loved your example of, 
you know, nobody's coming into your office and saying like, I lost my job and was masturbating 15 hours a day because, I mean, if you were really, truly, quote unquote, addicted to sex, like it would be overtaking your life in that way. <laughs> so that was a great example. Yes. Um, okay. I'm going to pivot question. So how often do you work with somebody who is asexual and says, even if they don't use that exact word, maybe they just say, Hey, I really don't have any sexual feelings towards others and I don't really have any interest in sex. Um, I actually see multiple people. I don't, they don't identify as asexual yeah. and I like regularly bring it up. I'm like, so do you think you're asexual? <laughs> um, or like somewhere on the spectrum. And I try to like describe it and et cetera. And they're like, no, I'm interested. So I see a lot of people who are sexually avoidant okay. um, and relationally avoidant. Uh, would I say they're asexual? I don't know. No, because they say they're not, you know, right. so I don't know. Um, but I, I don't see anyone that says they're asexual. Um, you know, I'm a sex therapist. So most people come to see me because they want to have sex right. um, or their experience, which doesn't mean that people who are asexual don't want to have sex. Like you can be asexual and, you know, only want to masturbate and that's fine. Um, but the people, I do see a lot of people who are sexually avoidant. I don't know, uh, you know, maybe that one day they may um, identify as asexual, but, you know, I, I think that when it comes to being sexually avoidant, it's totally different than being asexual. But but no, yeah. to answer your question, I don't have, um, and I don't see people who are asexual. That's super interesting. And just helpful to know which is yeah. you know i think i think also just a feature of the populations that i see mm -hmm. et cetera, yeah. and that the content that i put out there and what that brings uh who that brings to me that's a good point too yeah i can see that in general what like what medications could people be taking that may be affecting or impacting their sex drive um I mean, everything impacts our libido, our desire, and the way that our body works, whether, you know, we're talking about how we walk down the street or how we touch ourselves or how our partner touches us or our desire to be touched. Everything does. Um, of course, there are certain meds that are going to have more of an impact. So a lot of antidepressants, some mood stabilizers, um, some seizure medications. Um, uh, what else? I mean, so, you know, when we're putting drugs into our body, they're going to have an impact. What impact, you know, it really depends on the individual. Um, I see a lot of people that take SSRIs um, or SNRIs and um, they have no sexual side effects. And then I see people who, you know, literally have no desire at all. So it really, really depends on the individual. Um, but pretty much any substance we put into our body can have an impact on our body. Just like, you know, um, if we don't get enough sleep, we may not be horny later on in the evening because we're just exhausted. So everything has an impact on our sex, our sexual expression, um, which is, you know, a huge point to emphasize for people um, listening to this is that um, our bodies are not machines. We can't just we shouldn't expect our bodies to work like machines. We should expect challenges. Some of those challenges will be mediated and created by medication. Some of it will be created by a lack of sleep. Others will be just, you know, being frustrated and annoyed at our partner, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or we're simply full after just eating and we don't want to have sex, you know? So <laughs> there's a variety of things that are going to impact our sexuality. Meds definitely can do it. Um, and, uh, if we're specifically talking about psych meds and you're experiencing side effects, this is something that you really want to talk to your doctor, your prescribing doctor about, 
um, because there are so many medications out there that can help you with whatever it is that you're seeking to get relief from without um, having sexual side effects. Yeah, that's super good to know because I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure it just doesn't even cross a lot of people's minds. You might just be thinking like, I don't know what's going on. I haven't been, you know, the same lately when it comes to sex and it's good to know that so many medications could potentially be impacting that or like you said many other things what you eat how long you sleep those kind of things can impact it as well so i wanted to talk to you as kind of the last like serious question about attachment theory because i am obsessed with your post that you do on it I think it is one of the most misunderstood, th- especially on Instagram. I mean, there's just so many posts that I see every day about attachment theory. And I mean, I'm not a therapist. I have a bachelor's in psychology and then I went on to become an attorney. But just from cool. learning about attachment theory when I was a psych major, I always thought it was interesting, but... It, it it's not something that I like number one I've never used it in therapy like with my therapist my therapist has never been like okay Cordelia so you are this type of attachment style and you <laughs> know that's not a thing and then it's no. not something that I've worked on like you know in my own time it's not homework quote-unquote that my therapist has given me to improve any kind of aspect of my life. I think it's really, I think it's just really interesting, like how much it's kind of taken over like pop culture and how misunderstood it is. And I'll, I mean, I'll make a caveat and say like, I definitely don't want to, I recognize that people's caregivers when they're young, whether it be their parent or whoever is the caregiver figure I get that that has a really big impact and, you know, there's a lot of wounds potentially that could be associated with that relationship. But I also think that there's so much more to life than (laughs) just like that one figure as well. So anyways, I just wanted to hear you kind of break down your thoughts on attachment theory because like I said, your post every time you post about it I'm like so excited because I'm like oh finally somebody's speaking the truth (laughs) yeah well I mean it's become really popularized uh which is not bad you know I think it's really interesting and at times helpful information to understand our earlier experiences but now it's become used to understand our adult relationships in a very kind of all or nothing way. Like I get messages from people that say, I'm insecure avoidant. How do I become secure? Um, You know, in this way, that's like, I have to move to this, do this one thing that's better because that's, you know, the right way to have a relationship. And, and so that's not where we want to go with this, this stuff. Attachment theory is a theory. So it's a theory that um, focuses on ideas Um, and ideas don't necessarily translate into how one should live their lives. Um, They're how we should think and reflect about our lives, but you know, the real applied um, uh, implications is very different. So attachment theory focuses on the first year of life, which is one year of life. um, And it's also a Western ideology. 
uh, or Western um, theory that focused on Western ideology and white middle-class values. And um, uh, the, the research is really beneficial and adds a lot of information as I was saying, but again, um, there's also a lot lacking. Um, and there's so much lacking, I believe, that it really just can't be applied in this kind of big, broad brush that we paint ourselves and our relationships and our parents and our blah, blah, blah. Um, so, you know, I think it's something helpful to to understand, um, but um, I haven't thought of a, uh, I need to think of a food analogy for this, but um, it's something helpful to understand, but it's, it's you know, it's not salt or sugar, you know, it's not the main ingredient here. Um, and... Uh, you know, it really discounts culture, it discounts geography and culture, it discounts um, learning, it discounts, as you say, other people that are involved um, in our lives. Um, and I think it's a it's a bit of a kind of all or nothing, black and white way of thinking about things. Yeah. Like this is how we, who we were when we were a kid. And so therefore we're gonna be like that as an adult. Um, you know, I think I'm a really great example of that where, um, you know, I grew up in a family that was, you know, far from functional, um, but I had this therapist and he served as a really important model role and role model and um, person in my life that served as a protective factor against a lot of the, the things that were going on in my family. That's not to say I wasn't, you know, uh, certifiably traumatized. I was, <laughs> but um, having in my life really served a protective feature. And many people have other figures in their lives um, that are stand-ins for parents, especially, you know, if you look around the world, oftentimes it is a village that raises a kid and not just one parent. Um, and so that's just the kind of, I mean, there's just so much here. I could get lost in what I'm <laughs> trying to say, but um, when we think about our adult relationships, they're not attachment relationships. And I think that's the biggest kind of misconception that people have um, is they say, well, you know, I'm with my partner, but I'm anxiously attached and they're avoidant. Um, and this is the most common thing that I, I hear this like all the time. I have an avoidant attached a partner. I'm and I'm anxiously attached. And it's a much more complicated story, right? So maybe you're not anxiously attached, but you are with somebody who is not avoidant attached, right. but avoidant or emotionally unavailable because of a variety of things. And so that lack of availability is bringing out your anxiety. And so right. if we were just to focus on, okay, you have an issue because you're anxiously attached, then you know we would miss the entire context. So we can't apply any theory without understanding the context. And sometimes like in that situation, which is so common, um, the context invalidates the theory. Right. Especially now with modern love and dating, um, most people are anxious um, because uh, there's a lot of people that are just checked out, unavailable. There's so much pressure on love, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So people are anxious about it. Does that make them anxiously attached? No. Right. It makes the culture around love, sex, and dating toxic. Absolutely. And what you said is so true. I mean, I get so many messages like that too. And at the end of the day, most of the messages really like put the label aside about avoidant or anxious. And it's really like, hey, I'm dating somebody who sucks at communicating and they aren't emotionally available. What should I do? And it's like, there's most people are kind of seeking and I don't want to discount anybody who is maybe going through an emotionally available phase but you know most of the time the answer really is just like that's just not a good fit for you <laughs> and you don't have to use like attachment language my at least my two right. cents 
No, I agree. The other thing that I'll say is, um, you know, and this is about most of developmental psych theories, is they all center around the idea uh, and the assumption that people should be healthy mm-hmm. as defined by Western psychology. And um, the reality is that, you know, we live in a country that's built on all of these racist, sexist, classist systems where there's such income inequality that accessing health or information or resources that would actually contribute to security in relationships between the parent and the child are lacking. And so people are working more and can't feed their kids and are stressed. And it's actually not attachment that predicts this stuff. It's actually income inequality that can predict later relational functioning and a whole other range of things. So I think we would all be better served to focus more on some of those inequalities that really serve as barriers to people actually getting access to the factors that create security, rather than just focusing on the assumption that people should be secure, even when they don't have the resources to uh, you know, obtain that sense of security. So it's a really important part that's just not included in a lot of yeah. you know, psychological theories is you know, the assumption that we assume that people should be healthy. Right. Yeah, that's so true. And how can we be? It's so true and healthy, like you said, through that kind of Western lens. So not incorporating any other way of life into that. (laughs) Right. So final few questions. First one, what TV show are you currently binging? Or watching? (laughs) Um, What am I binging? Uh, you know, I, it wasn't a TV show. I like, I've never been a Star Wars person, mm-hmm. but I've just been so bored and like needing something to like consistently be there for me <laughs> in the form of entertainment that I've just started rewatching all the movies. So I did that. Um, yeah. I'm watching a lot of RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, yeah. What else am I watching? I just finished WandaVision, which was so good. Um, I haven't watched that yet, but I want to watch it. It's so I good. I love Elizabeth Olsen. Um, I think she's amazing. Yeah, she's great. Um, and I'm sure like a ton of other things. I like, I've watched all of Netflix and I don't remember what I've, you know, I don't remember any of it. Um, Same. I was just telling somebody the other day that I really expect Netflix to come out with like a new thing every week at this point, And I get very frustrated when they don't. <laughs> I know. What are you watching? Oh my gosh. Well, just kind of like you, I feel like I've been rewatching, just rewatching a lot of stuff. I watched true blood for the first time i never watched it back in the day it was i was i was into it it was good it was better than i thought it would be like starting it off i was like what is this but i liked it um trying to think what else i've been watching i've like rewatched a lot of shows that i'm a rewatcher i feel like like I'll just go back and watch things. So I've definitely, over the last year of the pandemic, I feel like I've just rewatched basically every show that I've ever liked. So that's been life over here. Well, if it works. Okay, the last question I have for you is how, I love when you post your dog on Instagram. I'm a big dog person. (sighs) So tell me about your dog and the story of like how you got your dog. <laughs> um, so Ellie is the love of my life. Uh, probably why I'll be single now forever. Um, but uh, she's the best, although she's she's going to be three and she's still not fully potty trained, which is all my fault <laughs> for sure. Um, but really frustrating. Um, it's also because it's cold. Mm. And so I'm 
want her to pee on the pad and then she doesn't pee on the pad because um, I don't want to go outside. But anyway, she's the best. She's super snuggly um, and she's very cute. She's a cavapoo. So that's a cavalier and a poodle. Um, I got her from some random breeder um, in Aww. Mississippi. She was flown in. And I think we were both just as nervous to see, to meet each <laughs> other because she was like, shaking and crying and I was like shaking and crying <laughs> um but uh I I had a dog with my ex and he kept the dog uh which was just heartbreaking for oh me um and so I like was just so upset for the first year and a half yeah. and I just like couldn't do it alone anymore um and so I was really struggling and then I got her and like instantaneously I got her and she like came out of her crate and was like literally one pound which was oh so God. cute and like that day, my appetite came back. Like I, <laughs> I literally like lifted the, I was like so depressed and anxious and it just like totally lifted it for yes. me. Um, I think that dogs or cats or animals are so, so therapeutic. Um, that makes me, my yeah. heart so happy that she just like instantaneously made you feel better too. Instantaneously. Instantaneously. Amazing. I mean. Like no, not even being dramatic here. <laughs> and I'm very dramatic. I love that. <laughs> It really maybe is. that is dramatic. Actually. No, I think it's whatever. I think it's spot on because dogs yeah. just like they're so lovable and they make you feel so loved. Like you feel so important. You just walk into a room and they're just just ecstatic to see you. Ecstatic, <laughs> yeah. And she's like, if she could crawl under my skin and cuddle with me, she would. Like she cannot get close enough. It's so cute. That's it's a little annoying when it comes to dating if I have somebody over um, yeah. and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And people are like, I really don't mind. I'm like, okay, okay this is fine. <laughs> um, but uh, she's a big snuggle bug. I love that. I love it. Um, that's, yeah. I hate that your ex got the dog though. That makes me sad. I mean, it's it's like, it was a long story, but he, I, I think it, it worked. That shit should have been that yeah. way. Yeah. Well, which is in fine. my divorce, I don't. You can probably hear my two dogs right now, but my I can ex hear. has like he had a dog before he we got together, but I mean I was around that dog like every day for like three and a half years, mm -hmm. and that was sad. You know, honestly, I was more sad about the dog than like he got to keep his dog that he took into the relationship, which. Right kind of like you said I think that's fair like he had the dog before me and that's fine but I'm like oh I that I just uh, the only thing I wonder about sometimes is like oh I hope the dog's okay <laughs> no yeah I mean they're relationships yeah. just because they're animals it doesn't mean that we're not having we don't have relationships with them and sometimes they're like really intimate relationships yeah. like we're taking care of this little thing and all exactly. they want is to love us that's a that's an intimate relationship. So true. Uh, my two dogs really, just like your Ellie, I mean, they have been so therapeutic for me. And even like on days where, you know, I might be going through a hard time and I'm really sad. They also like give me motivation. I'm like, well, they need to walk. So I need to like walk them around the block. Yes. You know, like just little things like that really do kind of add up where... If they weren't around, I might just like lay in bed all day or something. So little things like that are good. They're the best. Well, I so appreciate you chatting with me.